Had I been asked to pick what we'd deal with, I would not have picked that. We deal with self by taking on humility. Apparently it's an elusive quality, but it's indispensable to in order to live well for Christ and deal well with what life deals. Some of you are acquainted with the name John R. W. Stott, the late rector of All Souls Church in London, England. He was asked when he was in the States one time a pretty pertinent question. What is expected of Christian leaders in the West in this age? Dr. Stott was a man of magnitude. He authored over 20 books. He was a part of the Lausanne Congress for World Evangelization twice. He was a world traveler. He was an intelligent individual. And he was a godly resource. Now, neither you nor I would have agreed with all of his theology, but he's in heaven now. He knows better. But do you know how he answered that question? What is expected of Christian leaders in the West in this age? Humility. That was his answer. And he enlarged upon it a little bit. He said, being authorita authoritative has its place, but not to the exclusion of humility. And he went on and talked to the people who had asked him that question. And he spoke of what he sees in the Western church as too much empire building. Too much arrogance in the West. Notice Peter's counsel. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Humility. Let's see three things about it. This thing we talk about, this thing of humility, has a goal. It has a purpose. It's not just there for the sake of being there. It has a reason for being there in, P in Peter's counsel. When I was a child, I had the privilege, although I don't know that I would have called it that all the time, of going with my mom on her shopping trips. Now, you've got to know something about my mom. She was born in rural Georgia, raised on a farm in rural Georgia, way out in the sticks. And she vowed she'd never live in the sticks again. She used to say, I don't ever want to, she didn't drive, so she used to say, I don't ever want to live further than, away from a bus line than I can walk. So we settled in this little town of Mount Healthy, Ohio, north of Cincinnati, three blocks from the bus line. And my mom shopped. It's interesting, she didn't even buy that much, but she just loved to shop. So either she didn't want to pay for a babysitter or thought I could benefit from the experience, and I was probably begging to go anyway, she'd take me with her. And along about the third or fourth department store, I'm crying, Uncle. I'm sorry I went. And she's sorry I came. <laughs> and then she'd pull out the big incentive package. She would say, if you'll just be patient, if you'll just wait, when I'm done with this department store, and we go back to the very first one, and I buy what I was going to buy there. I don't know why she just couldn't buy it there to begin with, rather than to go to four department stores before she made the decision. But anyway, if you'll just wait, we'll go to the toy department. Well, that's what I needed to hear. That's probably why I wanted to go. She motivated me to endure hardship. 
And Peter is doing the same thing here on a much higher level, of course, much more significant level, motivating believers to practice humility and being humbled in light of the stewardship or of the hardship they face. Notice the goal. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We need to take stock of two things, what we're called to do and what we're called to enjoy. We're called to practice a life of humility and of being humbled. We're to be humble toward one another. Go back to last week's passage, chapter 5, verse 5, and read this. In the same way, you who are younger, submit, to yourself, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The idea is on a horizontal plane, we're to practice humility with one another. The idea behind that is that our life is to be characterized by self-giving service. We're to live a life that is particularly given to saying no to self in order to help others. Now that's foreign language in our culture. But that's what we're called to. Remember last week we used the German word, insagen, self-killing. All of us are to make it our goal to die to self in terms of whom we serve. And we're to have a humility toward God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, he says in chapter 5, verse 6. Now, as I understand it, this calls us to quit trusting in ourself, which is pride, and place our confidence in the grace of God, a self-killing in terms of uh, in whom we trust. Now, some things to point out here. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You notice the phrase. If you were, in an, if you were part of the audience that first read this letter, you'd have no, no difficulty at all understanding it or identifying with it. Marvelous choice of words on Peter's part, especially for these Jewish believers who knew about their own background. They would remember, for instance, Deuteronomy 9.26, where they were told that God had brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. They'd remember... Deuteronomy 9.29, where it speaks of God by his mighty power and his outstretched arm delivering them. They'd remember 26.8, where it says they were brought out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. This gives us good reason to be humbled. God is strong, and God does not forsake his own, and he never forsakes his purpose. We can afford to be humble before God. Now, it'll help if we notice the verb. This hit me with a force this week. The verb, humble yourselves, in verse 6, is in the passive voice. What that means is that we're not only to humble ourselves, we're to allow ourselves to be humbled. The action is upon us, not, us, not just us committing the action. We're to accept humbling. We have no need to fight against God. We should say no to personal fears and inhibitions about him. And that we should allow God to bring us to a place of personal confidence in him by bringing us to the end of ourselves. Hard to do? Almost impossible. 
But that's what we're called to do. That's what God will enable us to do. We're called to enjoy a certain kind of exaltation, being lifted up in time. This is the kind of exaltation which God will bring. This is the goal God gives us. It's part of the purpose behind humility. Notice the verse again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may, what? Lift you up in due time. Interesting. It's a paradox. One of many paradoxes that we find in the Christian faith. You say, what's the paradox? The way up is down. That's a paradox. But as I say, there are others. The way to life is through death. The last shall be first. The greatest shall be your servant. So this phrase in verse 6 gives further motivation to accept and practice humility. God calls the shots. God will vindicate. God will exalt. Notice the time element. In due time. He'll lift us up in due time. It's a testimony to God's sovereignty and to God's calendar. He is to exalt not just at some indiscriminate time in the future, but at an appointed time, at the right time. That's not insignificant at all. In fact, you can match it with chapter 1, verse 5, where it says that God has prepared a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you want to deal well with what life deals? Remember, humility has a goal. We're to humble ourselves and allow ourselves to be humbled, and God will exalt us at the right time. Now, this humility, not only does it have a goal, it has a certain look to it. In other words, it expresses itself in an appropriate way. When God allows for humiliation, and we want to respond by expressing humility, what does it look like? Well, look at verse 7. You'll find out what it looks like. It looks like trust. This is humility. Cast your anxiety on him. Cast your anxiety on him. Or some of the older translations, cast your every care upon him. It looks like trust. What does trust look like? How important is it that we do this? Is this an option for us? Well, listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Oh boy, he's called us to the impossible there, hasn't he? Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be given to you as well. You know what I call that? Learning to live by the 11th commandment. What's the 11th commandment? Thou shalt not sweat it. That's the 11th commandment. Do we live there very often? Not for very long. Maybe occasionally we, we touch, the, uh, touch that uh, level of spirituality and that level of yieldedness, but it's a struggle for us, isn't it? Why? Why is it such a struggle? F.W. Barron, in his little commentary on Peter, answers the question. It's a very short quote. Let me share it with you. To be overwhelmed with anxiety is to be concerned with self rather than with him. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. Our problem is with ourselves. We focus attention on ourselves, our dilemmas, our problems, our circumstances, instead of on him. He wants our worries. That's ironic. Why would he want our worries? Because he loves us and he can handle it. He wants our anxieties. He wants our cares. Look at the verse again. Cast your care, every care, cast your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. This word anxiety means to be intent on something, to be striving after something. It carries with it the sense of the future, a sense of anticipation, but also mixed with a sense of sorrow and frustration as to its outcome. That's enough of a definition. Let's illustrate it. Maybe that's better yet. You're sitting at home. It's 11 o'clock at night, and you're wondering where your kid is with the family car. And you begin to fantasize. And before the kid even has a chance to walk in and explain the fact that they just stopped at the DQ for a burger, you got him in the hospital somewhere. You're worried sick. And what about the car? And was there anybody else injured in this accident that didn't even happen? Isn't that true? Isn't that where we live? We push the panic button. We get all anxious. Or maybe it has to do with a, a, a sales situation at your work, and you're a salesperson. If, that, if I don't make this sale, I'm going to lose my job. And you begin to fantasize. And before you know it, you're in the bread line, in your mind. But the pre presentation hasn't, been, has, hasn't even been made yet in order to make the sale. But that's where we live our lives. Humility says, give it up. Easier said than done, but that's what humility says. Give it up. Entrust it. And yet so often we wallow in frustration and self-pity and all that sort of nonsense. I can just hear somebody saying, yeah, but you don't live in my shoes. If you did, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. You know, that may be right, but what does that prove? Other than the fact that I'm made of the same stuff you're made of. How can we afford not to worry when so much seems at stake? Notice something about humility. It has a reason. It has a justification. There's a reason to be humble. Cast your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Now, you may believe that about everybody else but yourself, but it's true about you as well. He cares for you. I want you to take a test with me this morning. It's a one-statement, multiple-choice test. I want you to answer the test, first of all, I want you to answer it twice. First of all, I'd like to, answer, to have you answer it in terms of how you feel God feels about you. Just at a feeling level, how do you feel God feels about you? Here's the statement. God's attitude toward me 
is one of indifference, mild annoyance, aggravation, hostile anger, or other. How do you feel God feels about you? Indifferent, annoyed, mildly, aggravated, or with hostile anger? You don't have to tell me, but answer the question to yourself. How do you feel that God feels about you? Now answer it according to what the Bible says about how God feels about you. God's attitude toward me is one of indifference, mild annoyance, aggravation, hostile anger, or other. You notice something? Regardless of how you might have answered the first time, the second answer, when you're answering according to the biblical record, you've got to mark other, because the others don't fit. God's attitude toward us is that of active care and intimate concern. That doesn't mean he's not just and he won't punish sin, but it means he loves us and he works on behalf of those who are his. We can afford to trust. That's the point. We can afford to trust. Listen, when we peel back the layers of self in our lives, what we find looks something like this. Pride, selfishness, aloneness, why is that? What's at its heart? One word, unbelief. That's our problem, unbelief. Failure to trust. It's hard to be humble and to trust. It's hard to allow God to humble us and to trust. When unbelief causes us to defend ourselves through pride, acting selfish, or feeling alone. Here's what I came up with this week hit me like a ton of bricks. You know what? The opposite of humility, we would say would be pride, right? I'm not so sure that that's the only thing that's the opposite of humility. The opposite of humility is unbelief. Will we believe him? Can we afford to allow ourselves to be humbled? Can we trust him that much? That's what it takes to humble ourselves. Trust in God. So how do we turn it around? How do we begin to trust? I mean, this Satan is, is attacking all the time. Look at verse 8. Jump ahead a little bit. Be alert, the sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Boy, that's an that's a expressive statement. He prowls around. He's seeking. He's crafty. He uses stealth. He attacks and his attacks are seldom straight up. He masquerades even according to 2 Corinthians as, a, as an angel of light. He uses deception and half-truths and innuendos to do us in. The cults are a testimony to this. This Satan, he delights in wrecking us through souring our relationships and sowing discord and breaking fellowship. He loves to sow doubt and undermine our confidence. He likes to silence our testimony. He likes to, likes to get us to stop believing that's his purpose. Satan is always and forever accusing us before God and accusing God before us. No wonder Peter says in verse 8, be alert. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The question is, how do we turn it around? How do we begin to trust if we haven't been very trusting of God? We make a choice. Because that's what faith is. Faith is a decision we make. It has little to do with how we feel. And there are too many people that 
think that faith is some sort of sort of excites a liver a quiver in our liver or something. Faith is a decision we make. It's a choice we make. We choose not to accept what our fallen self and Satan would suggest. We choose to believe and live by what God says. The next time you have cause to doubt, think. Where's the logical end of this situation that's causing me so much doubt? Who would be behind it? If God would not be pleased with it or glorified by it, we can know who's behind it. Quite possibly it's Satan. It's the kind of thing that he likes to take advantage of. So we've got to deal with ourself relative to this. Now this, this first point, learning to deal with ourself, practicing humility, merges so easily into the second point, learning to deal with Satan. We hardly know when we're out of one and into the other. If we're going to deal with what life deals, we've got to deal with Satan. And what do we have to do relative to dealing with Satan? We've got to be ready. Isn't that what verse 8 says? Look at it. Be alert of sober mind. How do we know when we're ready? We're ready when we're on our toes. There's different ways of translating these first words of verse 8. Be self-controlled. Be ready. Be prepared. Be of sober spirit. Don't fall asleep at the switch. That's what's being said. And there's a reason to be ready. We need to understand the gravity of the situation. This is not a let's play a ball game and when we get tired we go home. This is life. It never stops. And we've got to deal with ourselves and we've got to deal with Satan who's our enemy. We do that by resisting. Look at verse 9. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It's a reasonable statement. In fact, check out Paul's thinking. There's a classic statement in Ephesians describing spiritual warfare and it's bracketed by calls to resist. Listen to it. Put on the full armor of God so that you can... Take your stand, there's a statement of resistance, against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, here's the second bracket, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Get the point? It's pretty easy, to, pretty hard to miss it, isn't it? Such a descriptive statement. Who wouldn't want to resist? But the question is, how do we manifest this resistance? What does resistance look like? Well, Peter tells us. We're to resist with a certain sense of resolve. Notice what he says in verse 8. We're to be firm in the faith. Resist him standing firm in the faith. What does that mean? Well, this little word for firm literally means compact, solidly built. I get the picture of something, or if it's a person, he'd be hard-nosed, able to take a punch. It suggests to have a flint-like resolution regarding our commitment to the Christian faith. Listen, catch this. We're not an all-soul ran among world religions. If Christianity is true... 
There's no room for compromising its truths anywhere. Now, I'll be the first to admit, compromise is not always a bad word. Often it's a good way of coming to agreement on an issue. We can learn to compromise. We can compromise on how to achieve a certain end or on how much time and energy to spend on a certain project and things like that. But to compromise on issues of orthodoxy, like the divinity of Christ, God's plan of salvation, will only render us defeated spiritually. We cannot compromise on these things. And there are whole denominations that have been sabotaged by this earlier in, our, earlier in this past century. Subtle changes were introduced. People didn't stand their ground. They didn't know what was at stake. The result, an impotency in their whole denomination where a whole denomination has gone down. Now Jesus is just one of many choices. There's a certain relativity to religion. We've got to be broad-minded. Nonsense. It's either right or it's wrong. There's no compromise here. We've got to resist with a certain sense of resolve. You want to hear a great testimony of what it means to keep the faith and, and to resist? Listen to this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's resolve, my friend. And that's the payoff of resolve, too. How do we deal with what life deals? We deal with Satan. We resist by being resolute, by being firm in our faith. But that's not all. We also resist with a certain knowledge. Notice what he says. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Knowledge. It's odd, isn't it? We get the notion when we're going through some deep water that we're the only ones that have ever gone through that kind of tribulation at all. Whereas, in fact, it's not true. And that can make for a real pity party. Peter sets the score straight. He lets us know that, well, as Paul says, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. We all deal with stuff in life. We've all got to know this. The sooner we get a realistic picture about the fact that to choose and follow Christ is not popular, the better off we'll be. We don't choose Christ because we think it's going to win a, we're going to win a popularity contest as a result of it. We choose Christ because it's right. And it will in fact bring from some circles a certain reproach upon us. But that's okay. This is the common lot of God's people. And remember, God uses even this to his advantage, to purge and to purify us. So how do we resist Satan? We resist with a certain sense of resolve. We resist with a certain understanding, a certain knowledge. And we resist with a certain confidence. What confidence is that? Look at verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Look at verse 11. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We resist Satan 
with a certain confidence. And what we find here is a perspective and outlook on time. Notice how long suffering may last. A little while. Now, it may not seem like a little while when you're in the middle of it, but in relative terms, it's a little thing, and it's just a little while. Notice how long completed salvation will be, here referred to as the glory of Christ. Read it. The God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Still hard to wait. We're like kids on a long journey. How long before we get there? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Seems like such a long time, but it's just a little while. And there's something eternal waiting at the other end of this trial. What we find and desperately need to see here is God's promise. And what is God's promise? It's a promise to you. It's a promise to me. Not because of me, in spite of me. Not because of you. But in spite of you, God makes a promise. God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself, here's the promise, will himself restore you and make you strong, make you firm, make you steadfast. I don't know where you're living your life today, but I hope it's in Christ. If, it's li if you're living your life in Christ, we've got to learn to deal with ourselves, and humility is going to go a long way toward helping us do that. Belief in spite of our unbelief. And dealing with Satan is going to go a long way in helping us do that. Living a life of resolve, living a life with a certain sense of knowledge and awareness, living a life with a certain level of confidence in God. That's what it's all about. That's how we deal with what life deals. This is Peter parenting from afar. If we want to deal with what life deals, we'll deal with Satan. We'll be ready. We'll resist with resolve. We'll resist knowing that we're not alone. We'll resist confident that God will minister on our behalf. Not a bad job of parenting for Peter, was it? It must have helped those who initially heard it how many people has it helped through the centuries? How many people here today will it help? This is God's Word. This is for our benefit. We need to read it, respond to it, and live as a result of it. Let's pray.